so the first story is crazy, as always. Jill Biden, Jill, the wife, has come out today talking about Anita Hill and saying that everyone needs to move on. So first, let's have a refresher about what Joe Bi the Joe Biden Anita Hill controversy is all about. So this is from New York Magazine Intelligencer. A brief guide to the Joe Biden Anita Hill controversy. Hours after Joe Biden made his pre presidential run official last month, Anita Hill's name was back in the news. Biden, the New York Times reported, called Hill earlier in April to express his regret for treatment, for her treatment during the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Um, on what planet is it not obvious that he called her in April because he was running for president? He knew that this was one of the biggest issues against him. So ding, ding, his campaign people were like, you better call Anita Hill. Um, and so he did, but she wasn't having it. Let's keep going. Hill, who accused the judge of sexual harassment and was mocked, jeered, and dismissed by the Senate Judiciary Committee, which Biden chaired, declined to characterize Biden's words to her as an apology, according to the Times. She also said she could not support his candidacy. Nearly three decades after Hill's blockbuster testimony, it's clear that Biden's role in it is still an issue. For those whose memory of the fall 1991 is hazy or who weren't even born yet, here's a brief refresher on what happened. How did Anita Hill get involved in the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings? She almost didn't. Thomas's confirmation hearings were largely unremarkable until NPR's Nina Totenberg reported that Hill, then a law professor at the University of Oklahoma, had told the FBI that Thomas sexually harassed her. An uproar followed, and Hill was called to testify. In front of the all-male, all-white Senate Judiciary Committee, Hill claimed that Thomas sexually harassed her in the early 80s when they worked together at the Education Department and the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She said he repeatedly tried to get her to go on dates with him and made many inappropriate sexual remarks. He talked about pornographic materials depicting individuals with large penises or large breasts involved in various sex acts, she said. On several occasions, Thomas told me graphically of his own sexual prowess. In another incident, Hill said Thomas cracked a call, cracked a joke to her about finding a pubic hair on my coke. In his own testimony, Thomas would deny everything Hill said. From my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. What did Biden do during the hearings? As chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, it fell on Biden to preside over the hearings. Critics of his performance tend to hone in on three things. First, he did little to stop members of the committee from attacking Hill. The Republicans were the most relentless. Arlen Specter asked her why she didn't report the behavior to HR and said that discussing large breasts at work was common. Hal Heflin asked if she was a scorned woman and if she had militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights or a martyr complex. 
Charles Grassley accused her of lifting the pubic hair story from The Exorcist. Second, Biden failed to call additional witnesses who could have corroborated Hill's testimony. One of the, those women, Angela Wright Shannon, told Roll Call in 2016 that it was probably a good thing that she didn't testify. I don't think I could have maintained the grace and dignity of Anita Hill, she said. Hill, in 2014, said Biden declining to put the other witnesses in front of the committee was a disservice to me and a disservice, more importantly, to the public. It's becoming sort of a running joke in the household when someone rings the doorbell and we're not expecting company, she said. Oh, we say, is that Joe Biden coming to apologize? Even in recent months, Biden downplayed his role in what happened to her. To this day, I regret I couldn't give her the kind of hearing she deserved, Biden said earlier this year. I wish I could have done something. Uh, let's talk about that. I wish I could have done something. You are the one running the hearing. What do you mean you wish you could have done something? You're one of the only people who could have done something and you didn't. It's just another smarmy, gross, terrible thing that Joe Biden has said. Another smarmy, gross, terrible thing that Joe Biden has done because he doesn't actually care about sexual harassment. And as we know, he's been accused of that himself. I digress. Though Biden reached out to Hill in recent weeks, she told the Times the call left her unsatisfied. I cannot be satisfied by simply saying, I'm sorry for what happened to you, she said. I will be satisfied when I know there is real change and real accountability and real purpose. On The View last month, Joy Behar pushed Biden to personally apologize for his own role in the hearings. He pushed back. If you go back and look at what I said and didn't say, I don't think I treated her badly, he said. Let's listen in on that. We are back with uh, Vice President Joe Biden. So welcome to the View Apology Tour. Yeah. <laughs> I know something about it, believe me. We all do, okay? Yeah. You're not alone in this one. I'm proud of my record. <laughs> okay, so let's go to this one. This is, a, this is another area that, that uh, you know, uh, earlier this month you reached out to Anita Hill and uh, you personally expressed some regret to her about the way you behaved, I guess, back in 1991 when you were on the Senate committee. Um, you didn't vote for Clarence Thomas, right? Not only didn't I vote for Clarence Thomas, I believed her from the beginning. Yeah. I was against Clarence Thomas. I did everything in my power right. to defeat Clarence Thomas, and he's won by the smallest margin anyone ever won going on the Supreme Court. But she, she was not 100% happy with your discussion with her. So here's your opportunity right now to just say you're, you apologize, you're sorry. I think we can clean this up right now. Well, by the way, I, I did. I understand. Uh, look, I'm not going to judge whether or not it was appropriate, what she had, whether she thought it was sufficient. But I said privately what I've said publicly. I am sorry she was treated the way she was treated. I wish we could have figured out a better way to get this thing done. I did everything in my power to do what I thought was within the rules to be able to stop things. But look, take a look at what's happened. What I did when we got past, when we got through that god-awful experience she'd been through, she's one of the reasons why we have the Me Too movement. She's one of the reasons why yes, I was able to finish writing the Violence Against Women Act. Mm -hmm. She's one of the reasons why I committed and that was over. There'd never be a judiciary committee I was involved with that didn't have women on it. Mm -hmm. So I went out and made a, got a commitment that the women I campaigned for would come on the committee. I think that's uh, enough from Mr. Joe Biden there.
So also, in an interview with Good Morning America, Biden said he takes responsibility for Hill's treatment during the hearing and suggested he's already apologized. I believed her from the beginning, but I was chairman. She did not get a fair hearing. She did not get treated well. That's my responsibility, Biden told GMA. As the committee chairman, I take responsibility that she did not get treated well. I take responsibility for that. I apologized for it, Biden continued. I apologize again because, look, here's the deal. She did not get treated fair across the board. The system did not work. One possible reason why Biden was hesitant to say he's sorry, it seems that the idea was that if he started, he wouldn't ever be able to stop. And then on Twitter, Edward Isaac DeVore said, Biden says he waited to call Anita Hill because he felt like he had apologized publicly and I didn't want to invade her space. Pressed by Joy Behar why he's not apologizing to her, Biden says, I'm sorry for the way she got treated. I don't think I treated her badly. And there you go right there. Biden seems to think that he didn't do anything wrong. He apologized for the way that she was treated by those on the committee hearing. Uh, or at the committee hearing, but he doesn't think that he personally did anything wrong. And remember, he said he wished he could do something. He could have done something. He could have treated her better, but he doesn't take responsibility. And that's a pattern that we see over and over again. Isaac Edward, uh, Edward Isaac DeVore continues, there's a sense among some within the Biden orbit that if he starts apologizing for Anita Hill, for the women who feel un felt uncomfortable with how he touched them, for anything else, that it will open up the floodgates and he'll never be able to stop apologizing. Well, why does the guy have so much to apologize for? I mean, it's ridiculous. The Biden camp seems eager to put this episode behind the candidate. That became most explicit on May 7th when Dr. Jill Biden told NPR, it's time to move on. So that is what we're going to talk about next. It's time to move on. You know who gets to say that it's time to move on? And that's Anita Hill. And even then, this is such an important issue. It has to deal with sexual harassment, something that Joe Biden should be very familiar with. It's not time to move on. No one believes that it's time to move on, except for those whose best interest it is to move on. And that would be Joe Biden and Jill Biden by extension. So let's see what, what Mrs. Jill Biden had to say. So this is the NPR article that everyone is talking about and it's titled, Jill Biden says it's time to move on from Anita Hill controversy. This is by Danielle Kurtzleben. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Jill Biden is accomplished in her own right. She holds two master's degrees and a doctoral degree. But then, her husband is the former vice president and a top contender for the Democratic presidential nomination for 2020. And so, while she has maintained her own career, she has also taken her husband's aspirations in stride. As the former vice president has launched his presidential campaign, she's had to prepare for the massive commitment required for a White House run, along with the scrutiny. That has meant defending her husband against uncomfortable accusations, both old and new. When it comes to the recently renewed controversy over how Joe Biden led the 1991 Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas, in which law professor Anita Hill accused Thomas of persistent sexual harassment. Joe Biden tells NPR's Rachel Martin in part, 
it's time to move on. Biden talked to Martin about her new book, Where the Light Enters, as well as her husband's presidential run. On Vice President Biden's role in the Clarence Thomas hearings. Joe Biden's role in the Thomas confirmation hearings is one of the darkest clouds hanging over Biden's 2020 bid. At the time of the hearings, Biden chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he has faced heavy criticism over his handling of the hearings, particularly because of corroborating witnesses who were not called to appear before the committee to back Hill's story up. And this is something that a lot of people really have a problem with, is the fact that, that Joe Biden didn't call those witnesses up. I believe there were six witnesses, and I also believe that they were women, but I will have to fact check that that were ready to testify, but who were not called up. So Joe Biden, you wish you could have done something. That's the something that you could have done right there. In recent weeks, Joe Biden called Anita Hill, but in an interview with the New York Times, Hill wouldn't say she considered that call an apology. After telling ABC's The View, I don't think I treated her badly. Biden also recently told ABC's Good Morning America, I take responsibility that she did not get treated well. I take responsibility for that. Biden, I watch the hearings like most other Americans. And so, I mean, Joe said, as I did, we believed Anita Hill. He voted against Clarence Thomas. And as he has said, I mean, he's called Anita Hill. They've talked, they've spoken. And he said, you know, he feels badly. He apologized for the way the hearings were run. And so now it's kind of, it's time to move on. I wish that Jill Biden would put herself in Anita Hill's shoes. Would she think it's time to move on when a supposed Democratic ally treats her that way, runs the hearings that way? It's not time to move on. It's only time to move on because it suits your presidential campaign, Jill and Joe Biden. Martin, why did he wait until just before he was running for president to call her? Jill Biden. Well, I guess it was just not the right time, maybe, so he wanted to call her. I think he didn't know whether she would take his call, and he was so happy that she did take his call, and they spoke. And I think he was, you know, I think they came to an agreement. Martin, did you encourage him to make that overture? Jill Biden, no, that was his decision. Now let's talk about the fact that Joe Biden now has his own sexual um, assaults, well, sexual harassment uh, allegations. Women have accused him of sniffing their hair, which is super weird, inappropriately touching them, inappropriately kissing them. None have risen to the level of a criminal accusation but it's still harassment, it's still very creepy, and it's still a problem that's been documented time and time again in photographs and on video. So this has to be uncomfortable for Jill Biden to respond to about her husband, but she has to respond to it. On accusations to Vice President Biden of unwanted touching, Lucy Flores, a former Nevada Democratic Assemblywoman, accused Joe Biden this year of kissing the back of her head and sniffing her hair at a 2014 event when she was a candidate to be Nevada's lieutenant governor. It was the first of several similar accusations Biden faced in the weeks leading up to his campaign launch. Joe Biden responded with a video saying, governing, quite frankly, life for that matter, is about connecting. Words that Jill Biden echoes here. He also said, I get it. 
and he said he would change how he campaigns. Shortly after that video, however, he joked about the controversy at a campaign event. The fact that he joked about the controversy at a campaign event shows you what an SHIT head he is. He connects with people, and I think that's one of his strengths. And he heard Lucy Flores loud and clear, and he said he would take responsibility, and he would, you know, honor people's space. So you don't think Jill Biden has ever said, why are you touching and kissing all these other women? It's weird. I would hope that she would have said that. And I write about that in my book, when I talked about when I met the Biden family and they were different. They were a very affectionate family. My family wasn't that affectionate. So that took me a little while to get used to that. But then I saw how Joe connected with people. And now these are different times. Joe realizes that these are different times. And believe me, he's very conscious of, you know, how he interacts with men and women today. So there you go. The headline is it's time to move on from the Anita Hill controversy. Obviously, that is not the case and it's shocking and she is just as tone deaf as her husband is. I don't understand these people. And it must be the result of being wealthy, white, totally disconnected, totally establishment people. That's all I can think about is is how could you think it's time to move on? How could you not continue apologizing? It's it's okay. It's not okay, but it's, you know, people make mistakes in their past. How they handle things in the future is very telling. And the fact that Joe Biden did not directly apologize, and now the fact that his wife is saying it's time to move on, it's all part of PR, and that's all it is, is PR to move past this, and some of the older white generation is going to be just fine and say, oh, you know, they addressed it, it's fine, or maybe they didn't think it was a problem with the Anita Hill hearings in the first place. Maybe they didn't even believe Anita Hill, even though they were Democrats, and not that sexual harassment should have a side, but the reality was that it did have a side. The GOP tended to be on Clarence Thomas's side, while Democrats tended to be on Anita, Anita Hill's side. So that is something I will closely follow because what happened with Anita Hill is um, representative of a much larger problem with Joe Biden. This next story also will not come as a surprise to you at all. It's by The Intercept, uh, Lee Fong and Andrew Perez. Joe Biden's presidential campaign pledged not to take special interest money, but not to his pact. And so that's something you have to pay attention to in any presidential campaign or any campaign in general is the things that they say, they say things out of one corner of their mouth, but do something totally different uh, or use loopholes to get around it. So in this case, Joe Biden's using a loophole saying, oh, I'm not going to accept corrupt cash in my campaign, but he is accepting corrupt cash in his pack. So it's <laughs> really, I mean, a normal person wouldn't do this. They would hopefully do what they say they're going to do. But Joe Biden, who is an establishment politician, a career politician, has lost his way. And you'll see why he's lost his way, because he used to, when he was younger, talk about the fact that special interest money leads politicians to do special interest things. And now he apparently doesn't see it that way. 
So let's go through this great reporting uh, by The Intercept. In his bid to become the Democratic presidential nominee, former Vice President Joe Biden pledged to reject contributions from lobbyists and corporate PACs. But he has quietly taken in more than $30,000 in donations from corporate interests through a political action committee he created in 2017. Biden founded American Possibilities in 2017 to support Democrats in the midterm elections. The group took about $29,000 in donations from federal lobbyists and $5,000 from a PAC affiliated with Massimo, a medical device company. The former vice president, who announced his campaign last week, has already come under scrutiny for relying on lobbyists and other well-connected supporters to host his first fundraiser. Although the lobbyist and PAC donations represent barely 1% of the money received by American Possibilities, the contributions underscore Biden's history of close relationships with lobbyists and special interests. Biden's campaign did not return requests for comment. American Possibilities has been especially important to Biden's presidential ambitions. The PAC helped pay for a political staff after Biden left office in 2017, and it was recently given access to former President Barack Obama's massive email list of supporters. For those of you who don't understand what a big, big deal it is to get President Obama's email list, that's a giant deal. Email lists are gold when it comes to marketing, making money, things like that. So that's a huge, huge deal. Two days before Biden announced his presidential bid, American Possibilities sent messages to people on the Obama list and offered recipients the chance to be the first to know about Biden's plans. K Street History. K Street is a street in Washington, D.C., just so you know. Biden has a history of relying on lobbyists to assist his campaigns. Lobbyists donated more than $20,000 to Biden's 2008 presidential run. That year, William Oldeker, a political consultant and lawyer with whom Biden's son Hunter once worked as a lobbyist, served as Biden's legal advisor. Biden's shift away from lobbyist donations came as a result of his union with Obama, who was running on a pledge to reject lobbyist cash. The Obama-Biden ticket launched multiple television and radio advertisements warning of Republican nominee John McCain's relationship with lobbyists, along with the website www.mclobbyist.com, which detailed the dangers of McCain's lobbyist-friendly inner circle. Biden, however, had to deal with his own lobbyist issues during the campaign, including the vote he cast for a controversial 2005 bankruptcy bill after receiving a large number of donations from MBNA, a credit card firm that also retained Hunter Biden as a consultant. MBNA, which was headquartered in Biden's home state of Delaware, was bought by Bank of America in 2006 and subsequently acquired by the UK-based Lloyds Banking Group in 2016. As vice president, Biden hired Steve Reschetti, his longtime advisor and former lobbyist, to serve as one of his top aides. Through the Obama though the Obama administration had imposed a ban on hiring people who had lobbied in the past two years, Biden's office says Reschetti didn't need an ethics waiver to join the administration because Reschetti had terminated his lobbying registrations four years earlier, even though he had still been doing government relations work for 20 clients and his brother had kept lobbying for their firm's clients. 
American Possibilities returned a $5,000 donation in December from 21st Century Fox, then the parent company of Fox News. Even as his 2020 campaign promised a return of the Obama-era ethics rules on campaign money, Biden's first fundraiser last week was hosted by supporters who included the vice president of Comcast lobbying operation. Biden, for his part, has long been aware of how big money interests can affect politics. It costs a great deal of money to run, Biden said way back in 1974. You have to go to these people who have money, and they always want something. Let's take a look at that statement because I really want to highlight it. This is by uh, Zaid Jelani. Joe Biden in 2019 did a fundraiser for this week Comcast executive and a health insurance executive. Joe Biden in 1974 explains why this is bad for democracy. It costs a great deal of money to run. You have to go to those people who have money and they always want something. So let's play that. You assume I'm not corrupt, but I'm thank you for that, though. The system does produce corruption, and I think implicit in the system is corruption, when in fact, whether or not you can run for public office, and it costs a great deal of money to run for the United States Senate, even for a small state like Delaware, uh, you have to go to those people who have money, and they always want something. There you go. You have it in Joe Biden's own words. So good job to The Intercept for staying on top of that. It's very important for people to comb through OpenSecrets.com and wherever else that you can find donor information, what's happening with these PACs and super PACs and what's happening with these organizations that are set up like American Possibilities and how politicians are skirting, skirting the rules and skirting their own pledges to not accept corporate cash. Joe Biden you failed once again. Gaff after gaff with this guy. It's unbelievable. He has apparently come out successfully time after time with accusation after accusation of inappropriate touching and kissing. Um, he's apparently going to come out okay after the Anita Hill controversy and even after his wife and he have said terrible things about the controversy and about Anita Hill's um, expectations. She doesn't believe that that was an apology so he needs to go a step further and actually apologize for his own actions. And we also um, have him going against his word and accepting corporate cash through loopholes and that's that's not good at all. Let's talk about Russiagate, shall we? It's been a while since we talked about Russiagate. Here we have on the gray zone, um, Aaron Mate actually did an interview with his own father called America in Denial, Gabor Mate on the psychology of Russiagate. And this is an interview transcript, so I won't go through all of it, but it's very interesting, I thought, and so I wanted to share it with you at the end here. Physician, mental health expert, and best-selling author Dr. Gabor Mate sits down with the Gray Zone's Aaron Mate to analyze how Russiagate was able to take hold of U.S. society following Donald Trump's election. I find this absolutely fascinating. I'm going to play a little bit of this for you, but then read parts of the transcript. There are articles about how people are disappointed about this finding. No, disappointment means that you were expecting something, you wanted something to happen, and it didn't happen. So that means that some people wanted... Mueller to find evidence of collusion, which means that emotionally they were invested in it. 
it wasn't just that they wanted to know the truth. They actually wanted the truth to look a certain way. Mm. And whenever we want to look the truth, we want the truth to look a certain way, there's some reason it has to do with their own emotional needs and not just with the concern for reality. And in, in politics in general, although we think that people make decisions on intellectual grounds based on facts and beliefs, very often actually people's dynamics are driven by emotional forces that they're not even aware of in themselves. And I really, as I observed this whole Russiagate phenomenon from the beginning, it really seemed to me that there was a lot of emotionality in it that had little to do with the actual facts of the case. There's no question that for a lot of people in this country, the election of Trump was a traumatic event. Now, when a trauma reaction happens, which is to say you're hurt and you're pained and you're confused and you're scared and you're bewildered, there's basically two things you can do about it. One is you can own that I'm pained and I'm hurt, I'm bewildered and I'm really scared and then try and look at what happened to bring me to that situation. Or you can, instead of dealing with those emotions, come up with some kind of explanation that makes you feel better about them. So that I've got this pain, I've got this bewilderment, I've got this fear. So that rather than looking at what does it say about American society that a man like this could even run for office, let alone well elected, mm -hmm. What does it say about American society that so many people are actually enrolled in believing that this man could be any kind of a savior? What does that say about the divisions and the conflicts and the contradictions and, and the genuine problems in this culture? And how do we address those issues? You can look at that, or you can say there must be a devil somewhere behind all this, and that devil is a foreign power, and his name is Putin, and his country is Russia. Now you've got a simple explanation that doesn't invite you or, 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 or necessitate that you explore your own pain and your own fear and your own trauma. So I really believe that, that really this uh, Russiagate narrative was uh, on the part of a lot of people uh, a sign of genuine upset as something genuinely upsetting. But rather than dealing with the upset, it was an easier way to, um, in a sense, draw off the energy of it into some kind of a believable and uh, comforting narrative. It's much more comforting to believe that some, some enemy is doing this to us than to look at what does it say about us as a society. I mean, there was a massive denial of the actual dynamics in American society that led to the election of this traumatized and traumatizing individual as president, number one. So, so, because you think Donald Trump himself is traumatized? Oh, Donald Trump is a... Mm, clearest example of a traumatized politician one can ever see. And there you have part of that interview. I highly recommend that you check that out from the Gray Zones YouTube. Um, it's, you know, I have a background in psychology, so I find the psychology behind all of this so interesting. It's, um, it's interesting from the, the psychology of Trump, the psychology of, of uh, the people who actually wanted collusion to be found, and it's, um, it's fascinating, it's sad, and there's a lot to it. You know, there's a lot to this, this transcript, there's a lot to the video, so definitely recommend you 
you check this out. For example, um, on AM Joy in February 2018, Rod Reiner said, We have been invaded in such a subtle way because we don't see planes hitting the buildings. We don't see bombs dropping in Pearl Harbor. But we have been invaded, as Malcolm Nance points out. We are under attack, but we don't feel it. But it's like walking around with high blood pressure, and then all of a sudden you're not aware of it and you drop dead. So it's insidious, and it has affected our bloodstream. And if we don't do something about it, and that's why guys like John Brennan and James Clapper are running around with their hair on fire, because they're trying to wake people up and tell them, we have to do something about it, we have to protect ourselves, and if we don't, our 241 years of democracy and self-governance will start to collapse. Gabor Mate says, and the assumption that even if you take all the things that Russia has changed with this in the whole Russiagate narrative over the last two and a half years, and if you multiply it by a hundred times, even then you could not have possibly destroyed the United States. Even then, what is our self-image if we think we are that weak, that that kind of external interference could undermine everything that you believed this country has built over the last few centuries. So it shows to me a real shock reaction. And what has been shocked here is our beliefs and what this country is about. And again, as I said before, it's, all, it's in a sense more comforting. It's frightening, but at the same time more comforting to see the problem as coming from the outside than to search for it amongst ourselves and within ourselves. How about this, this, this is Aaron Mate, how about then the aspect of this that puts so much hope into Robert Mueller, because Robert Mueller was supposed to be our savior. Gabor Mate says, first of all, if we actually look at who Mueller is, who is he? He's a man who, amongst many others, was 100% convinced that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. As... Uh, Gabor continues, so the given line supported by Mueller led to the deaths of several hundred thousand Iraqi people and thousands of Americans and has incurred costs that we are all fully aware of in terms of the rise in terrorism and embroilment in multiple wars and situations. It takes an act of powerful historical amnesia for people to believe that this man is going to be our savior. That's the first point. Just incredible. Historical amnesia number one. Number two, America, if you can judge by its TV shows, is very much addicted to the good guy, bad guy scenario. So that reality is not complex, and it's not subtle, and it's not a buildup of multiple dynamics, internal and external. But basically, there's evil and there's good, and evil is going to be cut out by the good and destroyed by it. And that's really how the American narrative very often is presented. Now, the same thing is projected into politics. So now if there's a bad guy called Putin and his puppet called Trump, then there has to be a good guy that is going to save us from it. Some guy on a white charger that's going to move in here and a silver-haired, patrician-looking man who's going to find the truth and rescue us all, which again is a projection of people's hopes for truth outside of themselves onto some kind of benevolent savior figure. Needless to say, when that savior figure doesn't deliver, then we have to argue that maybe he was bought off or corrupt or stupid himself or insufficient himself, or that there's something secret that is yet to be uncovered that someday will come to the surface that Mueller himself was un unable to discover for himself. So that's all I'm going to read for this due to time. Um, but I definitely recommend you check it out. We can put the link in the description box and um, yeah the psychology of Russiagate is 
absolutely fascinating in my opinion and definitely something to look at. A lot of it is going to make absolute sense to you if you've been following Aaron Mate, but his father goes even further than him. So that's uh, something you'll, you'll want to check out. <laughs>